Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Triple R. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You are listening to 3 R. We're going to give you an hour of science now. It's a very, very special, special, special show that we have for you today. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning, madam. Good morning, Dr. Shane. It is a very, very special day today. <laughs> Do tell. Well, you know, normally we have some news and then we have some guests. Today, we have three guests from the Melbourne University Science Communication Program. We've got Harry and Kate and Danny, three of our wonderful students who are going to tell us all about some science that they have been looking at in the last few weeks. And these are your students, so if it goes bad, it's all your fault, right? Well, Jenny, Dr. Jen has kindly given me the reins of her science communication classes this semester as she goes off and writes a textbook. And I have then handed over the reins for this week uh, of your show. So we're all very grateful. Thank you, Shane. And I know you still have your fingers on the button, so if anything goes too far wrong... You'll just uh, cut us off. But yes, if anything goes too far wrong, you can blame me. But I don't think anything will go wrong. These guys are excellent, (laughs) trained. Uh, They're they're learning how to talk about science because if you're not, if you can't talk about science, then what's the what's the point of doing it? If you can't share it, why are you doing it at all? Sounds good. And if uh, those of you out there are long-time listeners of the show that know we've been doing this for about seven or eight years, and we always have a very good program, so no pressure, you three. Uh, We're going to do some news to start with, and then we're going to dive into some more deep science as we go along. But, uh, Harry, we're going to start with you. What's uh, piqued your interest this week? Well, thank you, Shane. It's interesting that you talk about deep science because I was going to talk about the role of artificial intelligence in, uh, in in the health industry. And it's kind of been, for a long time, it's been really like uncertain and highly speculative. Um, there was this old school of thought that medical practitioners were going to be some of the only people that will still have jobs when, you know, the robots take over. And now there's, there's people out there saying that artificial intelligence is much more powerful than a human expert. In fact, it's even unethical to still allow humans and GPs to do their jobs. Wow. Oh. And this is, this is kind of like largely due to the, um, all the misinformation out there. Um, so an international group uh, joint between the University of Birmingham, Birmingham and the University of Pennsylvania have recently published the first meta-analysis and systematic review of deep learning's role in health science. Their mm. conclusion? That artificial intelligence is equal or on par with the relevant human experts. So it's, it's, it's very interesting. There was some work that was done a few years back around dermatologists and mm. skin um, tests. And what they did was they took one of these AI systems and they trained it with you know several hundred thousand images of potential cancer yeah. spots. And what they found was when they later had a whole of the dermatologists look at them, they were no better at selection than the rest of the, yeah. you know, than the AI itself. Now, that being said, some might think, oh, well, there's no real issue there. You know, we don't need dermatologists anymore, etc. But that's actually nonsense. What, yeah. what it says is uh, the dermatologist can look at the two or three patients they really need to see instead of 100 patients they don't. Yeah. Um, because, yeah. the you know, so it's it's a component of not a replacement for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely, definitely, mm. definitely. Um, and yeah, like what what they found, what they found was that uh, they they looked at twenty thousand um, studies, 
And mm. of those 20,000, only 14 of them um, they found actually reported good quality data. Oh, so okay. you, you can sort of see why there's all this misinformation mm. out mm. there. Yeah, yeah. So of these, yeah, of these 20,000 studies, only 14 they actually took into consideration. And they found that the deep learning correctly diagnosed a disease 87% of the time compared with 86% of the time for the relevant human professionals. And in addition to this, they also correctly gave the all clear 93% of the time compared with 91 for the um. Mm. For the humans, and I think it's it's really interesting here to note as well that um, that the healthcare professionals weren't given the additional uh, information that they would have, you know, in the real world to help them with their to go, give some context and sort of to help with their diagnosis. Mm. So they just they were just looking at pictures. So does this study kind of suggest that you know we're going to get machines coming in and replacing no. healthcare professionals, or does this suggest that because we're on par and it's not taking into consideration those external factors, that machine learning still has a long way to go before we can even consider it as an alternative? Yeah, yeah I think I think there's still a lot more work to be done yeah. before we can even like you sort of answer the question. You know, what does this really add to clinical practice? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a really amazing start, and I think some of the possibilities where this could lead to. Um, is kind of helping out with um, a diagnosis when there aren't experts nearby to actually give the diagnosis. And it's also really good to free up um, resources in hospitals when things get overloaded. So like Mm. rural areas potentially where there's a lack of doctors. And maybe there's an unethical thing at the moment because maybe they aren't good enough to be to give a diagnosis. Like, I think there's still a lot more work to be done before we can be sure. Mm -hmm. And was it a specific field of medical... Um, field or was it's, it different, it was different just general, areas? General, ah, okay, general, general. Mm-hmm. Certainly, you'd feel you'd feel somewhat more comfortable knowing that the AI system could take into account, you know, a million data points, yeah. whereas a clinician can take into account fourteen or fifteen. Yeah, yeah. And if you have a, this is particularly interesting for people with rare diseases, yeah, where they're more difficult to diagnose. Mm. Simple stuff, you know, is is different. Um, yeah. But if you have a really, rare, you know, sometimes a diagnosis on a rare disease can take a decade. Yeah, I right. think that's where this stuff might be really, really yeah, interesting. Yeah. It might uh, make yeah. the links that are hard to make. Yeah. yeah. So. How exciting. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Harry. Very exciting. Yeah. Very exciting. Kate, over to you. <laughs> right. So for my story, we, we all know the stereotype, right, between dogs versus cats, where, where dogs, we think they form these really secure bonds with their owners and stuff and, mm-hmm. and love their owners, whereas cats tend to be regarded as more aloof, you know, these fierce, independent cats that don't need no owner, you know. <laughs> um, but a recent study that's come out suggests that this might actually be a misconception, or you could in fact say that this is... Fake muse. Uh, I see yeah. what you did there. Yeah. Oh boy. <laughs> Just looking at Doctor Shane's face, and he's regretting. Oh I, I need. I need a fork. <laughs> regretting letting me on the show. Wrap right. So right now. The point is, a bunch of scientists um, published a study this week in the Journal of Current Biology. These are researchers from Oregon State University in America. And um, what they did was they looked at the attachment styles that were demonstrated by both kittens and by adult cats. And mm. what they found is really interesting. They found that cats actually form the same types of attachment bonds as do dogs and also human babies, so human infants. 
So the way that they tested this, they used a paradigm that was based on an experiment used by psychologists in, I think, the 70s called the the strange, strange situation. But the way they tested it, they took the cats and their owners into a new room, a new room that the cat had never seen before. They were in there for two minutes with the owner. The owner then left for two minutes and the cat was left to sort of explore and or panic um, while left by itself in this new room. And then the owner came back into the room for two minutes and there was this reunited sort of phase. And what the researchers did is they examined the behaviour of the cats upon being reunited with their owner. And what they found, Mm. yeah, is that cats, they fell into these two different categories of attachment styles. So first category was called secure attachment, which is where, you know, when the owner came back, the cat would relax and feel comfortable exploring this new space because they had a secure attachment and they felt, Mm. you know, they drew a source of comfort from their owner being back in the room. Um, And then there was the ones that fell into the category of insecure attachment, which is where the cat either clung like crazy to its owner or stayed really distant and didn't interact with its owner, which suggests an insecure attachment. So, you know, either panicking that the owner, you know, is going to leave again or, or wanting nothing to do with the owner because they're salty that they got a man by their owner. Um, So what's interesting is not only are these two types of attachment styles exactly what they found displayed by both humans and dogs, the proportion of animals falling into each category was also eerily close. So what they found was that with the kittens, 64.3% were regarded as having secure attachment and 35.7% were insecure attachment. And in in the adult cats, it was 65.8% and 34.2%. And in human babies, in the exact same type of experiment, 65% of humans exhibit secure attachment and 35% um, uh, display insecure attachment. And it's similar with dogs as well. So this this suggests that cats are actually forming these bonds with their human owners in in much the same way to dogs and, and human babies, which, you know... Which is not, I don't think is that surprising. I mean, if you think about it, domestication is is based on the idea that we yeah, choose yeah. traits that we like the most in an For animal. For sure. And so we would domesticate a cat and a dog in essentially the same way, yeah, historically, yeah. not recently, but historically. Mm-mm. So the fact that those traits come out pretty much even, and even to us, yeah. says we're looking for yeah. our own traits in these animals as they're bred, and then you're picking them. And this yep. is exactly what the scientists said in, in mm. the discussion part of the paper. They were like, this is possibly the reason why domestic cats have had such success mm. um, as a domesticated pet for humans, uh, because they, yeah, they, they <clears> exhibit this, this exact same trait. And they actually took it one step further, and they, they got the kittens and took half of them and ran them through, what was it, a six-week training program to see if they could change the attachment style exhibited by these kittens. And after six weeks of training, no difference. Yeah. yeah so, right. yeah, this this obviously has massive implications for, like, shelter cats and stuff that are, that are not allowed to form these secure yeah. bonds in those critical periods of development. Um, yeah, so, but, yeah, this is the first time that a study is actually, like, you know, you can talk to cat owners and cat owners will always tell you that, of course, my kitten's attached to me. But this is the first time that a study has actually empirically shown this to be the case, that cats oh, cats do do this. still love dogs more. I know. I'm, I'm a dog person too. But I thought, I thought this was interesting that maybe my, my dog person identity Thanks, is... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I realise the, the hypocritical nature of that statement because I, I, I make arguments against people who don't believe in climate change. You've got to believe the science. But in this case, yeah. I just don't believe the science. I'm giving you the science, Dr. Shane. The science exists. And unfortunately, dog people like you and I are going to have to realize that cats are actually probably great as well. I don't have a problem with cats, just big cats. See, Uh, I prefer big cats. 
Little yeah, cats. Well, yeah, no. mini cats. No, no, no. There's not big dogs and little dogs. Oh, there's little dogs. Well, they're, they're chihuahuas. They're not really dogs. I was going to say rats. chihuahua versus great day. Yeah. You yeah. know, there's anyway. a big difference. <laughs> All right. And Danny, what do you got? So this week, I saw some really interesting photos of these pottery vessels that have these animal shapes and they have the small spouts where liquid can come out of. And apparently, these are prehistoric baby bottles. Oh, and, wow. Yeah. So three pottery vessels were excavated in two ancient European burial sites. And yeah, one is wow. dated back to the Bronze Age and one from the Iron Age. And what was very interesting is that when the archaeologists first excavated these pottery vessels, they postulated that it could be either used to care for the sick or for infants. Mm-hmm. And recently, this group from UK published on Nature Science that they found traces of milk in these bottles. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and more specifically, they actually drilled the interior of the vessels just a tiny bit to get sufficient amount of ceramic powder and they did isotope analysis and Mm -hmm. mass spectrometry and they found these two fatty acids one specifically in the human milk and the other found in cow or goat milks so that means the babies were weaned onto a combination of animal and um, human Mm. milk which is really really fascinating because it kind of corroborates what we know about the Neolithic demographic transition which Mm. means transition that occurred during the latest stone age yeah, yeah. And this transition, um, during this transition, prehistoric human changed from a hunting, gathering lifestyle to mass sediment, which is enabled by yeah. agriculture and mm. animal domestication. Yeah, right. And the fact that um, the baby started drinking animal milk means that they had a sustainable food source coming from animals enabled by animal domestication. Yeah, wow. So this is a pretty cool. And the second interesting phenomenon that occurred at that time was that there was an increase in fertility rates. And since breastfeeding is related to a period of anovulation, which means there's no ovulation, uh, scientists postulated it's because uh, that the mother wanted to wean the infants onto animal milk so that they can carry their second child. Yeah, right. So, yeah, so this is quite interesting and it gives us a lot of insights on how the mother, prehistoric mothers and families care for the feeding and nutrition for infants. And, you know, there's still, it's still quite, quite problematic to understand, like, that they're using animal milk for infants because, you know, when we're using unpasteurized milk that can carry bacteria, it's yeah, actually yeah. a huge health risk for infants. And also, um, there's a huge amount of antibodies that babies can get from breast milks that if you wean the infants too early on, they might have uh, lost deficits in um, immune function. So yeah, wow. They wouldn't have made the connection back then, though, that the yeah, diseases from have, milk... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like... Because if, especially if they were doing it to a lot of infants, yeah. some infants just died. I mean, the mortality rate would have been so high yeah. um, for many infants that, uh, you know, they would just... Yep, could have been could have been a range of things. Mm, yeah. I mean, you pro- probably the, the water you bathe them in um, yeah. is probably oh, just as problematic certainly. as the milk. Yeah, yeah, that's a really great point because these bottles are also found in burial sites, which yeah. means the babies actually died. So oh. we don't know. Potentially, wait, can I just yeah. potentially because these were found <laughs> burial sites? It was all the babies that were transitioned yeah. onto yeah. cow milk were all the ones <laughs> that died. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's so. Yeah, I'm not going to think about that fact. Yeah. And the sample size is only three, so that's another grain of salt yeah, okay. here. Um, even though I understand in archaeology, this is what we get, and we, mm. it's really hard to dig mm. up more oh, evidence. Course. 
Yeah. So this is quite a significant paper in archaeology because previously archaeologists have ignored children in studying ancient populations, but yeah, yeah. this study what it meant for、um, substantiating the Neolithic transition. It goes to show how important it is to study children.、Yeah. So that's yeah. very very、wow. cool. Very good. Thanks, Danny. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some music, and we'll be back in just a moment with a whole lot more science for you. Triple R. Now, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's the amazing show where the students come in from Dr. Linden's and Dr. Jen's science communication course, and they have taken over the show today. We don't have any guests. We don't need any guests. So, if you've been trying to become a guest on the show and we've、uh, said no, this is why. <laughs> anyway, we're going to do some serious uh, stories now uh, with the three of them. So, Kate, you're up first. What are you going to talk about? Yeah, cool. So. I think something that is at the forefront of everyone's mind right now is the climate crisis that we're experiencing.、Mm. Right? I mean, we had what 150,000 people in Melbourne just last Friday marching, which is more than we had at the grand final yesterday.、Mm. Just saying. And you know, even this this week, we've had the marches in Canada and in New Zealand and in various places in Europe. It's it's very much at the forefront of everyone's mind right now. And if you're Anything like me, you're probably finding yourself a little bit anxious right now about our future or the future of our planet, and maybe a little bit disheartened at some of our political leaders' responses、um, to this. So, what I want to try do with my piece this morning is to try and instill a bit of hope in everybody that's listening. Um, by talking about an actual tangible solution、um, that's you know, and some of the cool science that's going on around the world to try and make this a reality.、Mm. So, you know, hydrogen. Hydrogen is the solution that I'm going to be talking about today. But if hydrogen、mm. is solution is the solution, what exactly is the problem? Well, the problem. Is the burning of fossil fuels. So, as you may know, fossil fuels are things like coal, which is you know powers our electricity grid, or oil, which is made for petrol in our cars. So, if you're driving your car right now, listening to the show, you know you're probably burning fossil fuels. And the the problem with this, or one of the problems with this, is that fossil fuels are hydrocarbons, which means that they are some combination of hydrogen atoms bonded to some combination of carbon atoms. And when you burn it, so burning something is just reacting it with oxygen, right? So when you burn a hydro Carbon, you get carbon dioxide as a、mm-hmm. byproduct. Carbon、mm-hmm. dioxide released into the atmosphere. We all know that this is not great. You know, this is this is not what we want. This is going to propagate climate change. So this is where hydrogen comes in as an alternative. So hydrogen or hydrogen gas, hydrogen fuel is H two, two little hydrogen atoms bonded together. And when you mix it with oxygen, so when you burn it, what do you get? You get H two O. Water vapor. You get water as a byproduct. Obviously, far less damaging, far far better for our environment. So, sounds like the magical solution to all of our problems. Why are we not powering everything with hydrogen now already?、Yeah. Unfortunately, there are still a few hurdles that science needs to overcome before this can be a viable mass solution. And one of those hurdles is around the production of hydrogen, because hydrogen H two in its H two form, you, you you don't find that in nature, right? You can't mine hydrogen. It doesn't. Hydrogen is one of the most abundant elements on Earth, but it's abundant in things like fossil fuels or in water or whatever. It's it, it, it's not abundant in its H two form. So we、right. actually have to make it. So this can be done a few different ways. One of which is by splitting the hydrogen off of the hydrocarbon, so off your fossil fuels, but. Obviously, if your aim is to reduce the amount of fossil fuels you use, this is you know not that great and kind of defeats the purpose. So there's actually a greener way to produce hydrogen, and that is water splitting. So the way that works is you get 
water and you pump some electricity into it, right? And this electricity can come from renewable sources like wind farms or solar panels or geothermal. You get this renewable energy, you pump it into the water, and that splits the hydrogen atoms away from the oxygen atoms, and then you get hydrogen, which can then form H2, be stored and be used, and oxygen, which is just released into the atmosphere, which is fine. A bit of oxygen in the atmosphere. Us humans don't mind that. Not such a bad thing. So, essentially... This, this is all great, except that this reaction doesn't just kind of happen on its own. It needs a catalyst. And so for those of you not sure, a catalyst is a substance or something that you add to a chemical reaction to help make it happen. So it's there at the start. It's there at the end. It doesn't get consumed in this chemical reaction. It just helps facilitate it. It's not considered mm. past part of the you know overall equation, overall reaction. Um, and in order to get the hydrogen to form bonds with itself to make these little H2 molecules, which is what we need, you need this catalyst. And the problem is the best catalyst that we have for this at the moment is platinum. And oh. Yeah, so you may recognize platinum as being both very rare and very expensive, Pricey. right? So totally not viable to use platinum on a mass commercial scale to produce hydrogen. Yeah. We, need, we need better catalysts to make this an actual thing. And so there's a few different approaches to this problem that are being taken from around the world. But one particularly cool one that I thought um, was cool is where scientists have actually turned to nature for inspiration because nature does a lot of things really well. And lots of biological organisms actually produce hydrogen, like some bacteria, microbes, some plants. They produce hydrogen and they have these enzymes that help them do it. So enzymes are just biological catalysts. Like that's what they're there for to help facilitate this reaction so these organisms they make hydrogen using these enzymes and these enzymes are called hydrogenases so what's some yeah hydrogenases (laughs) logical name Uh, (laughs) so what some scientists have done they've used something called protein crystallography which is where you essentially you get a bunch of x-rays shoot them at the thing and you can measure the diffraction patterns of these x-rays and use that to map the atomic structure of something and so they've mapped the atomic structure of the active site so that's the part of the enzyme where the chemical reaction takes place they've mapped the atomic structure of the active site of these hydrogenases and what synthetic chemists around the world are now trying to do is is synthesize catalysts using you know readily abundant things like like iron and nickel and earth abundant minerals and metals to help synthesize these molecular models based on these hydrogenases that they've found in in bacteria and stuff to help make yeah both cheaper but also very very efficient catalysts for this hydrogen producing reaction which is really cool so to kind of like bring that back into perspective if we could find a 100 percent green way of producing hydrogen gas so like using a hydrogenase based catalyst um that would mean that you know we would be drawing from renewable sources like wind power solar power which are hugely abundant especially here in australia right we have massive access to this sort of stuff They're abundant, but they're intermittent, right? So the best example I think of that is, say you're powering your house using solar power. It's nighttime. You want to switch on a light. Oh, no. The sun's not there. You can't switch on your light. So we actually, we to make renewable energy sources a viable way to power our electricity grid, for example, we need a way of storing this renewable energy so that it can be used as a, yeah. you know, at an as-needed basis. And and hydrogen has been pitched as, as one of the best ways to do that, especially when we, you know, we make it from stuff like 
water. And so it, it's a tangible way to store this stuff. You know, we could export it. Countries like, you know, Korea and Japan have already expressed interest in buying hydrogen off Australia. So, you know, there's economic benefits to it. And, you know, so there's, there's all these really cool ways to make it. And if we could power entire grid off hydrogen, that's, that's zero carbon emissions. And that's, you know, something that we could actually achieve in the not too distant future which really gives me some actual genuine hope that our planet is not completely screwed which you know i find amazing personally yeah, yeah. The, the interesting thing that you touched on is is something that at the moment is very big around the world and that is the transport of energy yes so you know whether it be coal uranium or oil or whatever mm. there is a massive amount of transport of energy that goes on and mm. this is one of the problems as you say with things like wind and solar yeah. How do you transport the energy? Exactly. Because not all countries are going to be able to utilize it to the same level of efficiency as like Australia or exactly. the United States. Yeah, yeah. And so you need to have mechanisms to transport the electricity. Yeah. And batteries are not the way to no, do that. No, no. So, batteries, you know, I, I read a lot yeah, about the difference between like lithium-ion batteries <laughs> versus hydrogen fuel, right? And there's, there's so many reasons why hydrogen comes out on top. Unfortunately, we just have to overcome these hurdles mm. first. But, you know... For the amount of energy that it holds as an energy carrier per by like weight compared to the weight of a battery, like it's far lighter, it's far more efficient, it holds mm. far more energy. You know, the people working on different ways to store and transport and export hydrogen in a very safe and contained way. You know, this is this is an actual realistic future that if our political leaders want to, you know, put money in the right places, cough cough. Um, this this is a real viable way that we could we could hit 100% renewables by you know 2030 or 2050 whichever you know particular mm. source you're going by is the aim um yeah yeah I, I was wondering how clean the water needs to be for for you to use the water as a uh, reaction because poor countries that lack water clean water sources can they also use dirty water that might be polluted with uh, parasites or bacteria and use this to create power yeah so it i mean it it depends on the catalyst ultimately and the type of catalyst that you're using and i mentioned the hydrogenases but that's you know by far not the only thing that's being explored currently and essentially yeah you you probably need to desalinate it first especially mm. if you're taking seawater and which is another reason why australia is so well set up to do this we have a bunch of desalination plants including ones that don't even get turned on anymore since mm, we've come right. out of that particular drought phase when they were built so like we in australia have the infrastructure to make the hydrogen and then we would probably export it already in its hydrogen form to oh, those poorer okay. countries yeah mm. um but it is definitely doable Super interesting stuff, Kate. I think uh, you know, it works for the sun, right? Different reaction, but uh, hydrogen's a big <laughs> well, deal. Yeah, yeah, Hydrogen's yeah. an amazing material, and, yeah. and it's something that, um, you know, with the exception of some uh, fairly large accidents that happened early in the last century around the use of hydrogen. Well, and I it's, mean, you know. You know. But, but you know why it happens, because it's damn flammable. Yeah, <laughs> I was, but I was going to say, I, I did actually watch a thing about the safety of, of hydrogen yeah. fuel, because that's a valid concern. But the thing about hydrogen and the reason it was used to make the, you know, Hindenburg mm. fly is because it's lighter than air, yeah, right? Yeah. So they actually looked in the way that they design hydrogen-fueled cars is that if something was to explode in the hydrogen fuel tank, it would actually just release the hydrogen. The hydrogen right. would go up lighter yep. than air and no it would problem. burn up in the air above you where it, where it doesn't affect you. So yeah. it's actually considerably safer than, than petroleum that we use today, yeah. realistically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're all driving around with large amounts of flammable <laughs> material in our cars. Anyway, I mean, so yeah. exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, you know. All right, folks, we're going to take a break for some important station announcements, and we'll be back in just a few minutes. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. We have our student group in today. We're doing some great science stories. And up next is Danny. What have you got for us, Danny? 
So I recently saw a video of Obama warning us that we're entering an era where anyone can make it look like anyone is saying anything, whatever they want. And apparently, this was a deep fake video of Obama, and that went viral two years ago. And deep fake video basically means that the facial expression and the voice were artificially generated and slapped onto a real footage of、um, mm. Obama backdrop with his head and shoulder, but the facial expression was completely、oh. faked. And this was apparently made by BuzzFeed in order to highlight the danger of this technology. And while I was very, very scared initially、uh, of the potential of Misuse,、yeah. including you know potential geopolitical sabotage, personal、mm. revenge, blackmail. I was like very curious about this technology as well. I wanted to understand what what it is and how it works in order to demystify the fear.、Mm-hmm. So, what is what is deepfake? Anyways, it is the combination of the two words fake and deep learning. And deep learning is a sub subcategory of machine learning. Which is a subcategory of artificial intelligence, right? And to explain it a little bit further, machine learning is any、uh, methods of learning that doesn't require a human to give it an algorithm. And deep learning actually goes a step further; that will learn features using a network that mimics the human neural network. Mm. Um, mm. So, deepfake. It uses this type of、um, deep learning network called、uh, generative adversarial network, and what it does is that it takes a huge input of images or videos of the same person and it branches off into two networks. The first network is known as the generator, which tries to make as many fake videos as possible based on the real images it sees, and then it will send the fake to the second network known as the discriminator and dis. This discriminator will try its best to figure out if it's a fake image or real image based on the knowledge that it has already seen all the real images as well. So this this is interesting. So this is that whole what's it called the uncanny valley, the the region、mm. where where、yeah. we can tell.、Yeah. But you're telling that the the machine learning code here is what. Is doing that. The machine is doing that, so it doesn't even have to under. So this comes back to、uh, why don't CGI have this technology already?、Mm. But it produces the uncanny effect. But the thing is, it doesn't require any understanding of the human anatomy. Because let's say a CGI artist is trying to generate an image, it has to understand the 100 muscles that are responsible for your、mm. facial expression.、Yeah. But with This deep learning—it doesn't have to understand anatomy. It doesn't have to understand、uh, how your eyes wrinkle when you make a certain sound. All it has to understand is the temporal and spatial relationship between pixels and compare it against the real images. And it will try—it will get, become better and better over time based on the amount of training it has from、yeah. the amount of data. So we should we should explain to people this idea of the uncanny valley is where if you do you digitize. People, yeah. So, you know, like, yeah, so you, you imagine you know, in the sixties you got Bugs Bunny. You keep going, you get Beowulf in the nineties or something. You keep going, you got Princess Leia recently. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, and so forth. But you get to a point where it looks weird, and a lot of video <laughs> gaming、um, uh, video games have this problem. And it's called this uncanny valley, where for some reason we can kind of pick that it's fake. Yeah. And and it's very hard to get the fake the faces in particular right. Yeah, that's、yeah. exactly right. Like we can look at something and think that it doesn't look. 
quite right, but、mm. we don't know why.、Yep. And this is usually because the CGI artist didn't didn't get the anatomy of the face right or the physics of how light interacts with our face、mm. right. Because it's actually really really difficult.、Uh, let's say just looking at an example of the skin,、uh, when light goes through your skin, there's a subsurface light scattering effect and. If you want to understand it, just shine a flashlight using、mm. your、uh, iPhone against your ears or your nostrils、mm. or your fingers, and the finger will appear slightly reddish. And that's because translucent objects also、mm. um, they show a different color. So this is just one really small example how physics comes into play. And if you want to get the CGI completely correctly, it has to obey all the laws of physics and anatomy,、um, which is quite really hard to do, and it's really really labor intensive as well. I was just going to ask, like you said, this was based on what human neural networks. Yeah, like how how does that work? Considering you know, there's there's still so much that we don't understand about human neural networks. Yeah, so that's a really really fundamental question about machine learning. Like, how does it work? And the thing is, it doesn't really try to understand the human network, neural network. It just tries to use a simplified version of what we think the neural network is. Right, right. And how it is set up is. That there are, it's a layered system、uh, of artificial neurons. We call them nodes. So you can imagine them as layers of circles, and these are nodes. And each layer of nodes are collect- connected to the next layer. And then for the first layer, it will gather all the raw data input as pixels. And then for the nodes, all the nodes in the second layer, it's connected to every single node in the first layer, and it will also. Pick up a unique pattern from the first layer,、mm. and then each layer further down, it's able to pick up a greater pattern until the final layer. It tries to guess what the image is based on all the patterns it's picked up,、okay. and、cool. how exactly it recognizes the pattern is. Let's zoom in in one of the nodes on the second layer. Let's call it node beta. And when this nobody tries to recognize a pattern, it will when an image comes through the first layer, it will try to figure out which nodes from the first layer are the contributing to most of the pattern. And over time, when it gets more and more images, it will try to increase the width of the connection or the weight of those inputs coming from those specific nodes that are contributing to the patterns. Such that now we and that that occurs for every single node in this network. And so now we have a system that is able to recognize pattern.、Mm-hmm. And then one one other important question here is that how does the what drives it to learn a pattern? Because this is able to learn a pattern, but what fundamentally drives it? And that's from an external thing known as the cost function. So when the、um, system tries to learn an image. Uh, the cost function will basically assign it a value、um, as a reward or punishment at the end, based on if it's answering it right or wrong. So, if it answered the image correctly, it will assign it zero, which is what it wants. But if you assign it wrong, it will get a higher value. So each time、mm. the system gets an image, it will get a point, it will get zero or a high value, and over time they want to minimize the cost. To zero, and also if we average this value that comes out of it, we know how good, how well this AI system is performing, and if the programmer should tweak something in the system.、Mm-hmm. So you can essentially train these machines to be like puppies and want zeros、yeah. as traits. And、yeah. interesting,、yes. that's so cool. But it's also very scary because it's dealing with a huge amount of data, which makes allows it to be very accurate in you know generating facial expressions、yeah. um, and voices essentially. Yeah. It, it, 
It still has that element, though, of if you were to use this in the sort of way where there were responses required, mm. there's a gap there. So mm-hmm. as long as you didn't interact with it, you know, so if you were filming, you gave the example of the video of Obama. If you were filming that and it was pre-recorded and so forth, all fine. But if you if you wanted a scenario where someone was interacting, right, um, that's a very different game, isn't it? Yeah, that is a very different game. And I think they just haven't figured out... Uh, they haven't had enough data about the human body to get the spatial relationship of the arms, mm. of the legs correctly. And maybe one day um, when the technology becomes more sophisticated, we can artificially generate like humans that move in a certain in whatever way you want. Mm. And yeah. that also points to one of some of the limitations to this technology, because when you're slapping on a facial expression to original footage, there's also blurring of the edges, which makes it look less realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and also there's potential for double eyebrows or like lighting <laughs> inconsistency. So if people are really scared, you don't really have to be because some of these defects can be easily picked up by eye. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and I think there's that, that baseline human intuition that's very good at picking up very mm-hmm. subtle errors, mm-hmm. like errors that don't have to be uh, very large. Yeah. Our, they're picked up subconsciously by us very rapidly, Yeah. and we yeah. know something's up. We know something's not quite right, which is kind of cool. That mm-hmm. is very cool. Well, yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you, Danny. Yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Yeah. I think uh, this this is also it's progressing so rapidly. This this field, you know, we um, we've gone very very rapidly from mm. more or less simple stuff to quite detailed stuff mm. yeah. uh, in a short space of time. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. We're going to take a break, folks, for uh, some more music, and we'll be back in just a moment with some more science. Triple R. Uh, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. It's Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with us are our three amazing science comm students from University of Melbourne. And Harry is last to talk about uh, electric animals. Electric animals, yeah. yeah. Well, they found, um, about a month ago, they found two new species of electric eels in the Amazon rainforest. And previously, they only thought there was going to be one of them. But now they understand that there's three distinct species of electric eels. And these sort of animals have always fascinated me, and I mm. think I'm not alone on this. And I think it's because oh, definitely. Yeah. they have well, they have the power to um, to harness electricity, which is something that you know only humans could do. It's like right? Pikachu in real life. It's yeah, like Pikachu yeah. in real life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it turns out that almost every single animal on the planet um, uses electricity in some way, and it's a really ancient form of evolution. We use it, you know, to move our muscles in our nervous system, to fire neurons in our brain. But some animals have evolved to use this as a bit of a sixth sense. And what they, the term is uh, bioelectromagnetism. Um, and it turns out about 1.5% of all fish have it, um, which I think is kind of stupid. I, I had no idea about this, yeah. but 1.5% of all fish is massive. It's a lot of fish. It's a lot of yeah. fish. It's a lot of fish. That is. Um, and the reason why it happens with fish is because water conducts electricity a lot more than, than it does on land. But there are some instances where animals on land use it, but they use it in mostly wet environments. Um, so this, how, how animals use electricity is what Darwin would call convergent evolution. And mm. it's, where, it's where the way that he puts it is you imagine two people, different parts of the world, and they independently come up with the same invention. Mm. And, so, and it's kind of a rare phenomenon. Um, but it's really interesting when it happens Then there's entire blog sites written about convergent evolution. Um, yeah. One of the things that I find most fascinating about this is how they actually produce electricity. And 
in the same way that we have um, cells in our brain that fire a little electric charge across a membrane wall, that gives you a, a negative side and a positive side. And these animals have built entire organs composed of these cells and then arranged them with the thousands and thousands of cells in a, in, in a circuit. And so when one fires, they all sort of fire at the same time, like a domino cascading effect down the body. And when you think about the electric eel, right, 80% of its body is composed of these uh, electric organs and they have all of their vital organs just bunched up really close yeah. to their head. So when you have, when you've got 80% of your body, you fire all these, you know, electric, you, all these minute charges, but when you stack them up, the electric eel acts as like this huge battery and it releases up to 840 volts, um, which is massive, you know, when you think about a PowerPoint delivering only 240 volts. Yeah, it's, wow. it's huge. And it's interesting that we think about these as sort of batteries because back in the 1700s, there was a couple of Italian um, scientists, uh, Volta and um, Galvani, and they were some of the first people to sort of think up these um, battery designs, and they were actually dissecting electric eels. I bet. Yeah. Oh, and, and what no about uh, things like recharge cycles now on these eels? I mean, how quickly... So if I, if I go and grab one of these eels and give, give <laughs> yeah, me a yeah, zap, yeah. How, quick, <laughs> I mean, how long does it take before it can zap me again? So they, um, they had a couple of these eels in captivity, and they found that they could tirelessly zap for about an hour oh my wow. without, without breaks. And then I think after that, you know... it. Maybe they just stopped. Maybe they didn't want to. It's hard to. And yet you, eel, only, you only use hydrogen. Yeah. Why don't we just, <laughs> why don't just, we just get a, a bunch of eels? electric eels yeah. to power our grid? Um, because ethics, Dr. Shea, oh, I would like yeah. to raise <laughs> the, um, the issue of ethics. That old issue. So yeah, and what what a lot of these what a lot of these electric animals use them for um, is communication and electrolocation, and they so the eels they they can generate a low voltage kind of electric field, and so there's two kinds of um, location which they use. And one, they generate their own field and they measure disturbances in the field, which is kind of like mm-hmm. when you're walking around at nighttime at your home and you're trying to feel your way around. Mm-hmm. You, know, yeah. you, you, measure, you measure disturbances in the field generated by your hands and it's a physical field. It's a little bit different, but it's the same kind of concept. Um, but the other kind of electrolocation is this passive electrolocation where they pick up on electric fields generated by animals so as we as we move our muscles we create a little electric field with the um you know our our nervous systems and some animals have been evolved to pick up on those really really minute electric fields in fact the shark there's a couple of electric sharks which my god that's terrifying it's terrifying right why is sharknado a movie and electric shark not (laughs) like yeah yeah so these these sharks can pick up on um one source I found was a an electric field of five nanovolts per centimeter. Wow! Which C- can I can I just throw out a new term yeah. for the community? Shark lightning. Shark lightning. <laughs> Trademark. Yeah. yeah. Shark More lightning. To be scared uh, yeah. of. Cool. Um, so with <laughs> with this with, the, with this with this little with this with this tiny electric field, um, kind of one way of interpreting that is you take a balloon, you rub it with your hand. It develops some kind of static charge. Mm. You put that in the ocean. A hundred meters away, a shark could sense that electric field generated by no. that. Balloon. Wow! It's really? Mass- That's it's, terrifying. It's ter- but it makes so much sense, right? Because they have to. They have to pick up on 
the electric field generated by animals' nervous system. So, of course, they can, you know, pick up on the static charge generated by yeah. a balloon. Yeah, it, it's they- incredible. Incre- but, but sharks and fish, they, they have such long range. Mm. I think it's one of those things where small effects in the ocean give give you a lot of information. So, so you know, like the hammerhead shark, for example, yeah. has nostrils on each end of the hammer. Mm. Yeah. And it uses those to sort of locate where a smell's coming from. Yeah. And yeah, it moves yeah. its head left to right, left to right, left to right. And smells left, smells right, and works out what direction it's coming from. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the fastest fish in terms of, or well, it's fastest sharks in terms of actually being able to attack a prey like because in. it can hone yeah, in. Wow. And you know that's that smell in the ocean, which you'd think has smell in it. You yeah, know, yeah, but yeah. electric fields, of course, you know, travel at the speed of light. Yeah, yeah. So it's a whole different game all over it. Yeah, especially know, in the yeah. ocean, right? Because the ocean's got so many ions and stuff mm-hmm. in it. So yeah, there's yeah. so many electrolytes. Yeah. Electricity travels very well in the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's uh, there's reports of when um, these these uh, telegraph early telegraph cables um, that were connected up to submarines at the bottom of the ocean, they had huge issues with them um, because sharks would always go up and just attack them because they could sense that little electric field. Right. And that kind of is reason enough to think that mm. sharks would attack something purely based on the fact that they could sense an electric mm. field, yeah. which is, you know, it's terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I like the fact that uh, the transatlantic cables dealt with yeah. sharks, but in Australia it was wombats. <laughs> yeah. our, our big threat was wombats. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's fascinating stuff, Eric. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Um, the some, I guess, as you're talking about with the um, the directional nature of the um, the hammerhead sharks, there was also these um, platypus, um, which can measure differences because they have these pressure sensors all over their body and they can also pick up on electric fields and they measure the differences and the discrepancies between the um the electric fields and the pressure and then they can you know they can hone in on targets Mm. like that and it's that's insanely cool yeah it's really cool insanely cool cool. it's really cool stuff well thanks so much for the harry okay good good stuff any more or you well i was i was gonna yeah, yeah i think um what i wanted to talk about as well is bees and wait, 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 bees use this electrocommunication in a way that no other animal uses them at all. And as they fly around in the air, they develop this static charge. Um, oh. And when they land on a flower to pollinate it, that electric charge kind of gets dissipated over time. So when we develop a static charge, we go up and touch like the metal bit of an elevator or something it dissipates it really quickly or, or someone, someone's earlobe yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah or your younger yeah. sibling's arm yeah. if yeah. you're me during a cold the, winter yeah, so night bees, yeah the, yeah the um the bees the bees land on the um the flower and they dissipate it slowly over time and it sort of acts as a note like leaving a note for another bee because these bees can fly over and they can sense the electric field that's been generated on top of the flower and they avoid them and go and is that like how dogs pee on trees to claim them Bees leave electric charge <laughs> yeah. on flowers. Yeah, it's going to maximise the amount of peas to piss on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wild. Wow, that's, that's fascinating. That's so yeah. cool. Um, and, yes, I guess I just wanted to say that um, to think that, you know, we only knew that there was one species of electric eel mm. um, that existed now that we know there's three and we only discovered this a month ago. Wow. I think it just goes to show how much there is out there in the Amazon rainforest. And the Amazon, and, yeah. which is, you know, it's, it's, not it's going so, so well at the moment. Yeah. Catching sort of on fire it. and yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, fascinating stuff. I find that any any animal that uses electricity, but, you know, yeah. I, I always thought it was a defense or attack mechanism, but, mm. you know, this stuff around navigation and everything else, you know, we know birds use electromagnetism in various yeah. ways, but, but it's just, it, it's so intricate. And so, you yeah. know, when, 
when you talk about the eel's organs being forced up into one location so that yeah. the rest of its body can be used yeah, for, yeah, yeah. for this business, it's sort of like, whoa, you know, at what point, uh, at what point did that evolution start yeah. occurring? Like, mm. how did that start? Because it's very specific and very, uh, yeah, very interesting. Especially stuff. if it's convergent evolution, you have a whole range of completely unrelated species using this yeah. electric. Yeah. yeah. Shark lightning. Shark lightning. Shark lightning. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> I, I don't. <laughs> it's terrifying. Uh, now, Dr. Linden, they've, uh, they've done their little coursework thing now, haven't they? So how'd they go? Yes, they've. well, I've taken a lot of notes. I've been sitting there, sitting on my hands, holding my hands over my mouth if I can't sit, uh, sit on them because I've got so many questions and so many yeah. things to ask, which I think means that... The science that you've discussed today has been really interesting. Um, it's, been, it's been really great. Well done. Thank you, Linda. Thank Thanks, you. Linda. Did, did you all go to the climate rally? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It was um, full on, wasn't it? My gosh, it was the most insane thing that I have ever been a part of, yeah. surrounded by so many people so passionate about something that like, I also share a passion for. It was mm. both uplifting but also like... Oh, yeah. my God. <laughs> I, I, I found it fascinating. There was such a sense of community. I was standing yeah. next to this one lady, and she had three kids. And one of her kids, um, you know, they're, they're varying ages, but all sort of below five or six years of age. And she had to rotate who she could hold. Oh. And at one point, she looked at me, and I honestly thought she was going to hand me her daughter. <laughs> Thought, yeah, stranger danger, don't do this. Yeah. Um, but she sort of, and, But you support she, the climate, so yeah, here you, you know, can look yeah, up yeah, my yeah, child. I, yeah. I would have taken the kid for sure. I would, Kids you know, in better hands but, than. Uh, but that, she put, put it down on the ground, though. You know, moment of relief. I thought, no, no, I, I, don't, I, I actually didn't want to be holding this kid for two hours. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> the kid wanted to see. So it's funny. But yeah, so it, was big, uh, it was a big. It was a big. So heartbreaking, but so empowering at the same time. I don't yeah, know. yeah, it was interesting. You went, Doctor Lynn, too, didn't you? Yeah, I did. I was there with some uh, climate scientists and some geologists from mm. Melbourne Uni and from Monash as well. And, yeah, I didn't walk very far because there were so many people that yeah. I, couldn't, yeah. I couldn't get very far, but I saw some amazing signs. And, yeah, it was you're right, Kate. It was sort of heart-emptying and heart-filling at the yeah. same time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we're almost out of time. Uh, I have to say you three have done, uh, done your teacher here proud, I think. So, <laughs> Harry, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you, Shane. And Kate. I thought you were just so going to thank Harry for a second. Yeah. My focus has been on Harry. It's yeah, yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Because he's talking about electric eels. I'm yeah. talking about electric. Okay, no, fine. <laughs> fine, I'll acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kate. And thank you, Daddy. Thank you for having us. Yeah, um, no, yeah. it's been Amazing. absolutely our pleasure. And as I say, uh, each year when the student groups come in, uh, by doing a good job, you allow it to happen again next year. Yes. If you'd screwed yeah. it up, it would have been the last year we ever <laughs> Apologies in advance for future years. Yeah, we have to hand over to the team from Eat It. Have a great Sunday, everyone. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will give you some more next week. Triple R. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.